It's very common after serving seven years in ministry for a pastor to take a sabbatical. And as Adam shared this morning, I begin a three-month sabbatical starting tomorrow. And it's hard to believe I've been here over seven years, but as I go, I want you to know my deep gratitude to all of you at the Knox congregation and to the staff, my colleagues, for your ongoing support and encouragement. And I will miss you. But I'll be back in August, uh, hopefully with a lot to share about my experiences and um, hopefully feeling really good. So thank you. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations in each of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A Navajo proverb says, When you were born, you cried, and the world rejoiced. Live your life so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. I've been thinking about that because of Mother's Day. Giving thanks for my mom's big role in giving me life. And no doubt she cried with me as I entered this world. I've been thinking about that proverb also as Knox this month focuses on the theme of living legacies and how that ties into the scriptures today and the message today. Living legacies can have to do with material things we may hope to or plan to live, leave behind when we die. But I wonder what legacy we want to leave behind. What legacy do we want our lives to leave behind? We are told that our lives preach, that what we say and do sends a message. How do we want our lives to continue preaching after we die? When we die, will the world cry and will we rejoice because we know we have lived a life worth living? Jesus models a life worth living. His outer life conformed completely to his inner life, the inner reality that he is a beloved child of God. They always matched, and that is always a life worth living. Jesus proclaims in today's gospel that in God's house there are many dwelling places, and I go there and prepare a place for you, so that where I am, you may be also. We may be tempted to sum up the gospel in these words alone, that we may find in these verses the answer to a life worth living. Our place in heaven is secure, Jesus says so, so we are saved from some fiery or awful eternal hell. So now we can relax and take it easy and mind our own business, our own security, trying to make sure we have enough of everything we need and want while we're still alive. But we are Easter people. And Easter does not call for us to live a life focused on the afterlife. But it's a call to a way, a way of being in the world while we are still living in the world. Jesus goes on to say in the gospel that I am the way, the way to truth and to life. Jesus does not say, I am the end. And as disciples, we are called to be people of this way and to be on the way. The way is a process. It's not a goal. It's not an answer. 
And as we're on the way, we're called to live lives that reflect the life that Jesus lived, to reflect his values, to do the works that he did. And in this passage, he promises that we will do works just as wonderful as his, and even more so, thanks to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' work of preaching and teaching and healing was all about one thing, really, relationships. Wherever he went, he made friends, especially with those that the world rejected. He was all about giving words of love and peace and hope that built up people, restored relationships, and formed new ones. This is the truth and the life of the way that we are called so that we can help others find a life worth living also. In the passage from Acts today, we meet a disciple on the way named Stephen. And earlier in the chapter, we're told that Stephen is a man endowed with the Holy Spirit in powerful ways and with exceptional faith. And we read that he's able to do wonders and signs. And he's a powerful preacher. And you can go and read his sermon. And then you would understand why he is in such opposition with the religious establishment. He's a bold preacher. He retold the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and not a few people were very angered as he accused many of the religious leaders in playing a major role in Jesus' execution. So like Jesus, Stephen finds himself in trouble. And how does he respond to the opposition? As his persecutors pick up stones to hurl at him, He prays to God, Lord, don't hold this sin against them, echoing the words of Jesus from the cross. And as he breathes his dying breath, he prays, Lord, receive my spirit, also echoing the words of Jesus. So like Jesus, Stephen, a disciple of the way, dies for his beliefs and his faith. To follow the way means that we will know a deep intimacy with our God. And we will know new life and new joy. Those things are promised. But we're also promised suffering, as the stories show us. So how is this good news for us? We in the West, in our culture especially, may never be asked to die for our faith. With the religious freedom we are so privileged to enjoy, we may never know the dangerous persecution like our ancestors Stephen and Jesus did, or like modern-day disciples in this very moment face every day in their nations where they do not enjoy religious freedom, where it truly is life-threatening to profess their faith in Christ, in God. But if we are true to the way, We will bear witness to the love of Christ in what we say and do in ways that may offend many people in our communities. We may face resistance, rejection, criticism, scapegoating, and all of this may happen in our very homes, our workplaces, our classrooms, and even in our congregation. We won't all agree on how to live out the way. Yet the message of the scriptures is clear. And over and over it tells us that following the way 
will always lead to a life worth living, even with promised suffering. So the question of why suffering is one that I am often asking, and I suspect many of you are too. What has helped me is to reflect on one of our sacraments in the Presbyterian Church, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. The Lord's Supper is a meal of remembrance. Whenever we celebrate it here, we remember the night that Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest followers, the night that he was executed, and before that, he gathered with his disciples and he shared a meal. And before he passed around that bread, he took the bread and he thanked God for it. And before he could share it, he had to break it. And then he gave it to them and said, Whenever you eat this and do eat this together, remember me. And likewise, before they drank the wine from the cup, Jesus blessed it. And though they may not have seen this coming, he said, my blood will be poured out for forgiveness, for reconciliation. So whenever you drink this, remember me. Remember the pouring out for the sake of God's human family. Walter Brueggemann, a biblical scholar, says of the Eucharist that as the church, as followers of the way, we claim that the only bread able to nourish is bread that is broken and shared, and that the only cup able to nourish is one that has been poured out in self-giving for the sake of others. So as Jesus shared his whole life, body broken, blood poured out, as he gave himself away in loving and caring and forgiving so that we might come to know God's reconciling love, Likewise, Stephen followed this path of life-giving, of living a life for giving. And so we too are called to a self-giving way. But what does this look like? What might it look like for you? And as you think about that, what excites you about that, about the possibilities? Or what might you be afraid it might invite you to. Bread broken, cup poured out. I have wondered where have I seen this in the world in my life? I've been asking this question lately. And then I saw it. Last weekend I joined some other folks from Knox Church to attend the World Refugee Day Cup soccer tournament. This is a fourth annual tournament organized to help refugees feel at home in a place so far from where they came from. Along with a smile, soccer may be the next most universal language. And many of our thousands of refugees in Cincinnati grew up playing this sport. So to bring them together, over 200 athletes from 10 different nations to play a sport so dear to their heart was truly a joy to see. And we were there as volunteers, and our sole job was to be cheerleaders, 
to sit in the stands and cheer them on. And one of our cheerleaders even had pom-poms that we were waving around. It was a beautiful, inspiring day. Some folks here at Knox have felt a call to find a way to serve our refugee community, those especially in our neighborhood. And what we learned going to that tournament was that that very day, a Somalian family was planning to come to the tournament. This family has only been in the States a couple of months. They landed here in an apartment in Norwood with only a sofa as furnishings. They are in dire need of help in navigating this strange foreign culture and navigating a language they do not know and in learning how to live in an apartment. They have six children, ten and under, all of which probably have only known home as a tent with a dirt floor in a refugee camp in Kenya. So when some in our group heard that this family was coming, they sought out to meet them and they found them and they brought them to the bleachers so that we could all meet them. We could only greet with the universal language of a smile and offer a handshake. But we sat with them and cheered together. Out of the goodness of the hearts of two of the teachers at their Norwood school who brought them to the tournament, we were able to interact with this family. The teachers also had a big bowl of bagels and apples to share with the family. One of the, the kids, Abdullahi, the eldest, age 10, took a bagel from the bowl. I'm pretty sure he had never seen bread in this shape or form before. He was struggling to find a way to eat it. And his teacher saw this. And I watched her take reach out her hand and take that bagel and she took it and she broke it and she gave it to him and he ate and in that moment I and Abdullahi and the teacher and anyone else who witnessed that surely were nourished through the bread broken and given the family is father Ibrahim Mother Halima, their six-year-old daughter Ismahan, their five sons, Abdullahi 10, Hassan 9, Yusuf 5, Adbirmahan 3, Abdizakai the baby. The only bread able to nourish is the bread broken and shared. The only cup able to nourish is one poured out in self-giving love and caring and forgiveness. Friends, this is the way of Christ, the way Jesus lived and taught and died for, knowing that it was so worth it that we might all know it so that we too could live a life worth living, which means a life making friends with people we may never thought we'd befriend, people who are far from us or very near, both those who look and live like us and those who don't. As some here at Knox explore their call on how best to serve our refugee community, they will be exploring faithfully how we can serve the Somalian family who has moved into our neighborhood. 
And if you'd like to learn more, you can contact members Priscilla Ungers or Pam Ginsberg or Matt Burkhart. And if you don't know who those are, please let Adam and I know and we'll be sure to get you in touch. To begin my sabbatical, I'll be returning to the island of Iona in Scotland. Many of you know this is an ancient Christian pilgrimage destination where pilgrims often spend a week in community in an ancient abbey, worshiping together, eating together, doing chores together, and communing with nature together. I keep returning to this place. For me, it's one of those sacred thin places, as we say. Thin meaning where the veil between heaven and earth feels tissue paper thin. And as I prepared to depart this week, I've been revisiting the story of how Iona was discovered by an Irish monk named Columba. People were living there, but he landed there for his very first time in the 6th century from Ireland. He and his friends established a monastery on the island as the home base for their missionary travels as they also went to other islands. And one evening in June in the year 597, he went out to the fields where his brother monks were working and he said to them, The time is near for me to be parted from you. At dawn tomorrow I shall yield up to the Lord the precious thing with which he has trusted me for so many years. The monks knew that Columba meant his very life, his soul, and they were very sad. But Columba himself was full of joy. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life so that when you die, the world cries like Columba's monks and you rejoice, like Columba. The last words of scripture that Columba copied down in his writings was Psalm 34.10. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Columba lived a life worth living that in the end fulfilled that Navajo proverb. And friends, may we too keep in mind that life worth living so that when we die, the world will miss the love and the care and the forgiveness that we have freely offered throughout our earthly journey. They will feel the sadness, but we will rejoice because we know we have lived our true selves, our outsides matching our divine inner Christ-like, that we will know we have lived a life truly worth living that helps others do the same. Thanks be to God. Amen.